Welcome to Behind the Work. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're recording this episode in advance today because by the time it plays on the radio, it will already be Memorial Day, the last Monday of the month of May, a national American holiday. This day honors the men and women who died while serving in the U.S. military. And this holiday actually dates all the way back to the end of the Civil War, which ended in the spring of 1865. This is a war that claimed around 700,000 men. It was a tragedy, obviously, just for the loss of life itself, but also because fathers and sons and brothers were fighting against each other. The Union versus the Confederacy. A conflict that threatened to tear this nation in half an entire century and a half ago. And if that had happened, America would have never become the worldwide superpower it is today. It was also a tragic war. Like I said, not just for the loss of life, but also because it created a drastic, dramatic shortage of men. It hurt families. It's uh, obviously going to be quite noticeable when 700,000 extra men are gone than usual. So just a somber day, but also a beautiful day, Memorial Day, reflecting on the sacrifices of all those who gave up everything to die for this great country. It goes all the way back to 1866. Waterloo, New York is considered the birthplace of Memorial Day. It is also sometimes called Decoration Day. Or it it used to be called Decoration Day. It probably isn't really called that very much now. But I just wanted to start the show today with maybe a little bit of that history and just thinking about all of the stunning, earth-shaking events that led up to where America is today, its dominant position on the world scene, of course, in slow decline because of major problems like the national debt, for example, and deadly division from within. But still, it is miraculous that the nation even survived the Civil War. It would have been so easy for, say, France or England or Spain to invade and attack us while we attacked each other. And, of course, God had a hand in making sure that didn't take place. Well, today on the show, we're going to talk a bit more about the life experience of the late educator and theologian Herbert W. Armstrong. We've been talking about his lifelong search for truth, how he really did have to struggle and strain 
to find God's one true church back in the 1920s. And eventually he did find the true church, even though it wasn't very powerful, even though it didn't really have much inspiration in terms of the messages that were heard at Sabbath services. But they did have the right name. They had the name Church of God. They did have faithful people who were humble and tried to believe God as best they knew how. It wasn't long before Mr. Armstrong actually was asked by the members up there in Oregon, that part of that region of the One True Church, to start speaking to them at services. Mr. Armstrong never considered himself a minister. He wasn't even really a member of the church. He was just associating with them because they came closest to the description of God's church of any other church he had researched. But he did write what he learned from his Bible study up into articles that were put out in the church publication. He did talk with the members up there in Oregon about what he was studying, about what he was learning. And because of these things, they wanted to hear more from him. The ministers weren't there every week. They wanted to hear from Mr. Armstrong, especially while the ministers weren't, weren't there to teach them. This, of course, put Mr. Armstrong at odds with the ministers in that church. Again, something that uh, would not be recommended to be done in the Philadelphia Church of God today, of course. But this was a different situation because, well, that church was dead. That's what the Bible says about this fifth era of God's church, the Sardis church era. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 talk in detail about the, the main characteristics of all seven church eras. Sadly, the main characteristic of the Sardis era is that they were dead spiritually. They were not doing a powerful work to warn or to teach the world. And Mr. Armstrong even would test the leadership of that church. When he was trying to find the one true church, he would present them with some truth that he discovered in his Bible study, and they wouldn't accept it. Even though it was the church, they were not really too receptive to understanding new truth. That's a big reason why they were dead in the first place. But now leading up to chapter 21, this is titled The Million Dollar Clay Business. During this entire time, the late 1920s, Mr. Armstrong is really struggling financially. He was thriving spiritually like he never had in his life. He was studying night and day for years at a time to learn God's truth, one doctrine at a time, straight out of the Holy Bible. But they were certainly trying years, physically and financially. This is 1928, just basically the start almost of 
his what he called the lean years, the years where he didn't experience much physical prosperity. But he writes here in the autobiography, which you can get for free at thetrumpet.com or even read there online. But if these were the lean years financially, they were the fat years spiritually, years of coming into the true riches. Yet I still had many lessons to learn. Jesus had said regarding economic prosperity, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Christ there was, of course, speaking of all these physical things being added unto you. If we have the right priorities, God will bless us. He will provide us with abundance and prosperity. Mr. Armstrong, though, still had a bit more to learn. As he continues, but God doesn't always add the material prosperity until after humans have been tried, tested, and proved faithful. You see, Mr. Armstrong knew that blessings would come in God's time. And he stayed the course even as he was pushed all the way up right against his breaking point. He continues here, I had been humbled. Oh, yes. And still, I know now that had God allowed me to have prospered financially at that stage of spiritual experience, self-pride once more would have seized me and the humility would have fled. (laughs) That's really how it is for all of us when God works with us. Mr. Armstrong has written before about this peacock that he saw on the campus the Ambassador College campus in England. And this was back in the 1960s when he was on a trip there. This peacock would just strut by his window, see its reflection in the glass, and stand there preening and admiring itself. It thought it was the greatest thing in the world. But how easy is it for all of us to do that sometimes? Really, it's pretty easy for us to, to waffle between the two extremes. One day we think we're excellent, we're perfect. The next day we might think we're the worst of the worst, depending on how that day happens to be going. But there is a lot of vanity involved in all of that. Mr. Armstrong learned that. He realized that he had a lot of learning still to do, a lot of lessons that God still needed to teach him. He had to have his vanity driven out, or else how could God really start to bless him again? It's so common. I've heard so many times, maybe in following uh, the life stories of an athlete or a, a prominent, successful individual of some other field, how they were really at rock bottom. And they were really suffering, really struggling. And then all of a sudden, they started praying to God for the first time in their lives. This is so true of so many different stories I've read about. We automatically, with nowhere else to turn, 
will finally decide to seek God. Sadly, though, too often we don't seek God until we are at our worst point of desperation. And then if God does happen to restore some prosperity to our lives, well, we're prosperous again. So we're not as desperate and we don't have to really pray as much, we don't think. It is amazing how it does take a crisis or a real hard trial sometimes to remind us of how important it is to have a relationship with God. He wants this relationship with him to be constantly thriving, growing in power, in faith. He wants us to always be in contact with him throughout every day, regardless of our physical wealth, regardless of whether we are struggling at the time. But humanly, carnally, why would we be crying out to God if things are already going well? That's what Mr. Armstrong had to learn. God had to really knock him down and humble him. Take away his prosperity and keep his prosperity away until he was locked in, totally committed to an entire lifetime of following God. And then when God would supply that prosperity again, Mr. Armstrong wasn't going to go anywhere. It is quite alarming, though, to see how much Mr. Armstrong did have to suffer. He couldn't pay the rent. This was in 1928. Was months behind paying the rent. Was terrified every time the man came around to collect rent from him even though this was a really nice man who more than once paid the rent on their behalf. But they were scared to see him because they knew they didn't have what he was there for. Electricity was being shut off. The gas was shut off. They did have water, but they had no food to eat. And this Mr. Armstrong once tried to make macaroni without any of the ingredients during this trying time didn't really work out so well he said we tried <laughs> they, they, talking about trying to swallow it he said we tried but the slick slithery tasteless mess simply would not go down somewhat humorous to read about that now since he it, he wasn't currently in that situation but for them we're talking about life and death and especially for Mr. Armstrong who had traditional values who was striving to have biblical manhood values he wanted to be the protector and the provider of his household yet was pretty much on the brink of starvation along with his wife, along with his children. It's hard to even imagine the misery he must have felt from that. 
not being able to provide for him the way or to provide for them the way he must have wanted to. Mr. Armstrong writes about how he had to learn to obey God totally. Not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. And he, of course, uh, had to learn this, and it was made more plain to him through interactions with his children. His wife, or excuse me, his daughter, Beverly, was told not to rent any more fiction books out of the library. Her eyesight was bad. She was reading too much. That's not really a problem anyone seems to have today. But back then, Beverly was just reading so much that her eyes were were faltering there. Mr. Armstrong said, don't check out any more fiction books from the library. Sure enough, Beverly had another book that she was reading at home after Mr. Armstrong had told her that. And Beverly justified it by saying, well, I didn't get it from the library. My friend loaned it to me. You see, Beverly did obey the letter of the law. She did do word for word what her father had said. But clearly, Mr. Armstrong's intent was for Beverly, Beverly to read a little bit less for the sake of her eyes, perhaps to read a little bit less fiction, since there are better books to read than that usually. She did not apply the spirit of the law as a 10-year-old girl. Of course, stories like this only reinforce to Mr. Armstrong the importance of obeying every last detail of what God commands. And even if God doesn't word for word command something in the Bible, we have an opportunity in our Bible study to think about God's spiritual intent for what he said. Obviously, we must keep the letter of the law. Do word for word what the Ten Commandments say, for example. But what about applying the entire extent of the law? Matthew 5 shows what God expects there. How Christ was saying, don't just avoid committing adultery, also avoid even looking lustfully upon a woman or a man. Don't even have the wrong thoughts about that, much less take action on those thoughts. As Christ said, he came not to do away with his father's law, but to fulfill it, to magnify it, to show us the spirit of the law. This was a powerful lesson that Mr. Armstrong was learning at this time. As he was almost starving to death, as he was making $50 per month because he only had one laundromat as an advertising client, all of the other ones were swept away by forces beyond his control. He had enough money for... <laughs> Not a whole lot. That money didn't pay the rent. It didn't pay for the utilities. They could get a few meals of slimy macaroni, maybe some beans and rice, anything that 
was cheap and would last longer. But he really had to learn during this time of suffering to obey God to the fullest, to establish this good habit in hard times to the point that even when he prospered again, even when he was enjoying good times again, he would keep on obeying God to the letter and to the spirit of the law. Mr. Armstrong learned about healing. He learned about humility, like I mentioned. He realized that he'd have to rely on God totally to provide for him and his family as as they struggled. He was desperate for any cash he could get. He was searching all over for open doors, all over downtown Portland, looking for someone who would hire him for an odd job here or there, anything to provide for his family. That is a great lesson for all of us. He didn't just sit at home and mope that he had no job. Desperation really will help you work hard, won't it? He went all over Portland. He canvassed the city to find anything he could to bring home some money to provide for his family. And God always helped him out. There was a time one day where he was about to be evicted that night. And he was able to get a job compiling a survey right before the deadline, the eviction deadline. Just incredible how God will test our faith to its very limits sometimes. And then he'll provide the answer. God wants us to grow in faith our entire lives. It can't be something where we just have a little bit of faith because we prayed about something for 30 seconds and then it disappears. If we don't receive the answer the moment we ask for something. Mr. Armstrong had to learn that. Mr. Armstrong also had to take some jobs that made, (laughs) that really just annihilated his vanity, humiliated him, loading and unloading firewood into homes around Portland. Back then, that was considered a job that the homeless would do. So everyone who drove past Mr. Armstrong or everyone who walked past him on the sidewalk while he was loading this firewood into someone's home, that chipped away more and more at his vanity, knowing that those people probably were assuming that he was homeless, that he was what Mr. Armstrong described as a down-and-out bum. But the only reason he got this job was because a woman randomly appeared at their front door and told Mrs. Armstrong about the job being available. Mr. Armstrong never understood how this random woman knew that he was in desperate need of a job. 
And yet, he did need a job. And this woman gave him the lead he needed to go and do that work, and he did it to the very best of his ability. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 talks about that. Anything your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's what Mr. Armstrong did, and one woman paid him double for the job because he did it the very best that he possibly could. The end of this chapter, chapter 21 of the autobiography, describes a new business venture. Mr. Armstrong had had his lucrative laundry advertising campaign swept away from him, obliterated because of a bad decision made on the East Coast, and he's up there in the Northwest. All of his laundry clients were obligated to join up in this federation of sorts, take on advertising from out east, and could no longer afford to keep Mr. Armstrong on board. Mr. Armstrong knew it was a bad idea for those companies, but they didn't listen to him. And as a result, their advertising probably suffered, but we do know for sure that Mr. Armstrong suffered. He really was driven to almost total ruin because of something he had no control over whatsoever. He only just, again, had that one client left. But now he stumbles across this new lucrative project. He talks with someone who found some clay, this seemingly magical clay that could heal, so to speak, a big gash. It could make eczema or acne go away. Mr. Armstrong did some work. He, he talked to all the experts to try to refine the product to see what uh, people who went to a beauty shop would want from the product to see from scientists how to make it the most effective version, how to make it smoother instead of gritty with the sand that was in it. He did all the work to make this perhaps a massive, massive business venture. But that was where the stock market collapse of 1929 came in. And he could not finance starting up a large-scale operation like this. He was still resourceful, though. He did have a, a smaller uh, operation going where his own kitchen was basically a clay factory. But again, this opportunity that Mr. Armstrong might have had to make millions and millions of dollars just destroyed, wiped out by forces beyond his control. Mr. Armstrong wrote about this once again, as if some unseen supernatural hand were taking every business opportunity away from me. Another promising business of million dollar possibilities was swept away by powers and forces beyond my control. 
I began to call myself King Midas in reverse. Everything I touched turned, well, this time to clay. It was certainly not a gold mine. A gold mine. It was only a clay mine after all. Like I said, though, he did persevere and still make a little bit of money from it. It just wasn't nearly to the scale it could have been. God's hand was in this. And like Mr. Armstrong knew, like he wrote about, it was clearly because if he had gotten swept up in a business opportunity like this, he wouldn't have had time to follow God. He wouldn't have been able to devote his life to God. And to this day, you listeners, all of us involved with God's work benefit because God worked with Mr. Armstrong like this. We benefit from this work. Mr. Armstrong had to go through a lot of suffering, and to this day, we are the beneficiaries of that. Mr. Armstrong continually learned hum humility throughout his life. Another woman would bring him breakfast, bring his family breakfast when they most needed it. She always seemed to know. God was bringing Mr. Armstrong into contact with the job opportunities he needed to make just enough money, the people he needed to help him just enough to survive. He was still being humbled, still being brought along to learn full obedience and trust in God. God provided him what he needed, but not maximum abundance at that point, or else Mr. Armstrong probably wouldn't have stayed the course. We'll probably get into this story a little bit more in the near future. But thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Behind the Work.